I'm Jason Klom, and this is Comedy on Vinyl. The year is 1976. The album, The Rutland Weekend Television Songbook, Songbook the artists Eric Idle and Neil Innes. My guest this week is Boff Wally. Thank you so much for doing this show. Uh, thank you. It's good to be here. Uh, so if people do not know who you are, I mean, my little my little general description was musician, writer of musicals, runner, and formerly of Chumbawamba, if anybody uh, is not familiar. Is there anything else I'm missing, though? Uh, no, that sounds about right. Yeah. About right. Good. I thought, thought for a minute you were going to say it. And, and former member of Chumbawamba, if anybody remembers them. <laughs> would be yeah, fine, I will be say, you know, I, I am I am just of the right age to have purchased tub thumping and then not having been aware of anything before that because I might have been the least punk teenager on the planet. And okay, yeah, not yeah. knowing that That's you started, fine. you know, within a decade of the Sex Pistols, you guys are all roughly the same age as the Sex Pistols, a bit younger. But I mean, it's it's the yeah. history of Chumbawamba is fascinating. And uh, say that again. The history of Chumbawamba is fascinating. It's fascinating, but even yeah. more so when I found. I think the reason uh, I sought you out specifically was knowing that you uh, that somebody in the band must have been a fan of Firesign Theater because you did a song called "Everything You Know Is Wrong." But then you decided yeah. to pick this record, which I am so happy you picked because it's a delight. <laughs> yeah, because it's a it's a it's one of those classic um, albums that I think kind of disappeared when it didn't really deserve to. Mm -hmm. Where where also, I, also, it's also the album I think that for me that that attaches. There are so many, you know, when you're growing up and you you, you go through different albums and phases and and artists, and this is an album that kind of has attachments to lots of different other things which were all influential so what uh when did you first hear it i mean did you see, were you watching the show and then picked up the album or was it something you picked up separately no i was watching the show because i was a really big fan of the bonzo dog band and then neil in his and and, and and of monty python so when kind of the bonzos and monty python started doing things together i really got i really became kind of obsessed with it all and this is all kind of pre-punk but um mm -hmm. But uh, it made me realize that even though I didn't play any instruments or I didn't, I wasn't a musician or anything. I just thought, yes, that's what I want to do: music and comedy. Oh, I love that. I love. And, and the thing is, but most people are not going to immediately say, "Well, okay, sure," but you did "quote unquote" serious music. I'd like to know where, for you, where the intersection is for for music and comedy for you. Like, what stuff have you done that is is would you consider like the most comedic? Because it, it I'll, I'll tell you, like, I didn't get it because I was a dumb teenager. But I, I want to know more about the philosophy behind the band. Well, what, what happened was is that obviously we were really influenced, really influenced by by punk and punk rock. Mm -hmm. And then and then we were but obviously I had we all had all these kind of baggages of influences from other places as well. Mm -hmm. And me especially, I was just really into the whole Frank Zappa, Bonzo's kind of theatrical side of of music okay so when we started playing we we said we could we don't want to just be a band that stands on stage with instruments we want to do kind of theater with it as well let's try and illustrate each song with some kind of you know with dressing up and acting things out and illustrating things visually because that's the sort of thing that people will go away and remember mm -hmm. and obviously the influence for that came from from you know um in terms of music came from things like Frank Zappa and the Bonzos where watching different members of the band doing different things whilst whilst they were actually playing and thinking yep yeah, this is this is a good thing to do but what happened is cuz cuz we were really political at the very beginning we were going through um it was the miners strike and it was uh, Margaret Thatcher and and it was a very kind of repressive time so a lot of our songs were very serious and it was only after about 3 years we started bringing comedy into it or not necessarily comedy but humor yeah and we also decided that it was ridiculous that that we were we were we were kind of a um we lived in a kind of commune cooperative type situation about eight nine ten of us and um we were playing these concerts where we were singing about very kind of politi politicized things and and important ideas and we were very straight-faced and then as soon as we came off stage and the rest of the time we were just basically taking the piss out of each other <laughs> and having a really good time and being silly and having a laugh and if it, it did literally took us two or three years before we sat down and said why don't we take that 
that sort of joy and fun that we have in everyday life and try and make it part of the, the stage thing. Mm-hmm. And that's what we did gradually. And that so it became the point where it was like, look, when we go on stage, we have to we have to have fun. We have to enjoy it. Yeah. Otherwise people otherwise people watching it won't enjoy it. They'll think it's a, a lecture or a, you know, some kind of full faced <laughs> pamphlet put to music. Do you and think that that's a natural changed. evolution for punk? For most punk bands? No, not really. No, <laughs> a, a lot of them stay stay more because again, I know shit about music, so you you will be the educator here. So you think most of them, it, it becomes a thing where they they do kind of stay a little serious as they go on or sell out. Yeah, and well, pretend to be punk. Well, most artists in general, once they hit uh, an idea which people want to go and see, which people will go to a concert to see, or will they buy the records, they kind of mostly stick to that idea anyway and we were mm-hmm. always adamant that we would never do that right from the very beginning we said whatever we do let's let's keep changing let's keep challenging ourselves yeah and that so so that's why for instance people that that heard tub thumping or even still hear it think that's what chumbawamba sounds like yeah. when in fact chumbawamba sounds like 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 a hundred different things depending mm-hmm. on which which you find i mean is and, it, and it, again it, that was, sorry go ahead no, go on sorry no, you I'd know. say that was all. We were we were really influenced by, by the things that we'd listened to before punk, mm-hmm. so we were able to kind of bring you know like so for one thing we were really into the idea of four part harmonies and things like that because we'd we'd grown up listening to the Beatles, and um, but you know that whole kind of um, yeah I know I keep keep saying Zappa and the Bonzos but. There was just this kind of thing of look, you take music and make it surreal and dadaist and and you can use pastiches and you can use parody and you can still say really serious things, which is what those two bands were doing. I mean, you have so many fewer limits if 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 you're embracing the idea that you don't have to have one specific image, one specific sound, right? I mean, shouldn't that be the goal of most musicians? I don't want to speak for everybody, but most artists, I think. Yeah, it should be, but it but it's kind of not. I mean, I, I mean, thinking of examples, I, I always think about um, people like Roy Lichtenstein and Andy Warhol. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at the stuff they did before they became stylized, they were really eclectic. They were trying all different kinds of kind of graphic ideas and illustrative ideas. As soon as they sold a show to a, a big buyer, mm-hmm. um, they stuck with the idea for the rest yeah. of their lives. They didn't change at all. And I... I'd find that really stifling. I think that, you know, we we had two, our first two albums were quite kind of still a bit melodic, but quite loud and and aggressive. And then we sat down and said, right, we've done two of those. What should we do next? Mm -hmm. And then what we said is let's do an acapella album of English folk songs from like the 1300s. Holy cow. Just because it would really challenge us and it would really challenge the audience who just thought they knew who we were and that we were that you know that they could pigeonhole us mm-hmm. and it's a real risk doing that but it's really exciting so we just carried on with that attitude i mean that is the kind of thing where all of it let's say we were making a a mock documentary about a chumbawamba type band they do these first two albums and then all of a sudden for <laughs> English folk songs from the 13 and 1400s, that's when you hear crickets immediately. That's when you piss people off. I want to know how your audience actually did react to this becoming your new thing. Well, one thing is that every time we, we kind of went, every time we, we kind of did a sea change in the way, in our music, so at the point where we embraced dance music and started doing lots of kind of beats and all that sort of thing and, and uh, remixes, and every time we did make a change, we got a different audience. But mm-hmm. we kept this core of of people who got what we did, who I understood what we were doing. They didn't they didn't necessarily have to like it all. Sure. Um, but they kind of understood that we were trying to do something totally different. And yeah. the, and that they they knew that they would buy an album and think, is this gonna be is this first track gonna be a kind of, you know, harmony do wop thing from the nineteen fifties, or is it gonna be some kind of heavy punk thing or is it going to be really folky and acoustic or, you know, we just, just keep throwing things at people and, and they think, yeah, I understand what's going on here. In the same way as I did growing up listening to all, all the people that I listened to. Yeah. What? Okay. So uh, th- you already knew the Bonzos then before this comes about. 
I'm assuming, and yeah. Python, right? So you, you're right there along with this stuff coming out. Um, what, I mean, obviously you're perfectly fine with delightful, strictly comedic music. Did, is there an obvious influence or is it just generally the whole idea of it? It's just the idea that I, I'd like to keep humor or have you ever done strictly comedic music? Have you ever tried that? We kind of have, but it's always been kind of track to track, and mm -hmm. it, it'll be like something on an album that would, that was done specifically to, that, to that's funny or that's a parody or something like that. Mm -hmm. I remember the the first song that we ever wrote that was specifically humorous was um, must have been about nineteen eighty four or something like that, mm -hmm. maybe eighty yeah eighty four and. Um, it was really early on, and we, and we were, you know, quite serious at the time. But we, we wrote this song, which was about. Um, there was a government pamphlet that came out, which was about what to do in the event of a nuclear war, Oof. and uh, it was this pamphlet that went round to. It was called "Protect and Survive," and it went round to everybody. All everybody in Britain received this pamphlet, and you got them given it at school as well. And it, it had a list of, of. Uh, uh, things advi advisories as to what you were meant to do and it was sort of like uh place yourself and your family under the table mm -hmm. um put the you know put make sure the the chairs are set at a certain distance you know if you hear the air raid warning do this blah blah, blah. and the last and one of the ones was uh, in case if you've got time then whitewash your windows <laughs> and the idea was at this time that they thought that whitewashing your windows would kind of deflect um you know the the nuclear <laughs> the nuclear <laughs> fallout and so we wrote this song which was just that to a kind of beat but it just had the list of of advisories and then at the end the last one just said and remember whitewash your windows whitewash your windows whitewash your windows so that the neighbors can't see that you've shit your pants <laughs> and that was like the first joke song that we had and we, we really enjoyed doing it so we we're like yep let's do some more of those <laughs> <clears throat> Ah, uh, see, this is, yeah, okay, this, it's, it's so hard, you know, I did a documentary a few years ago where I was trying to draw some obvious, what should be obvious lines between humor, punk, uh, people who do pranks, people who do, you know, living art, and I, I don't think it's easy to just draw straight lines through anything, I do just think there's, there's just a natural crossover between, uh, you know, what I would, gen what I would generally call anarchy but obviously anarchy is a very specific real thing something that was something you were living maybe still are i don't know enough about your life now but it was definitely a huge part of who you were can you explain mm. it a bit to me because i feel like people like myself have a general pop idea of what anarchy is yeah i think that because so what, what happened is when i when i was maybe i don't know 14 or something like that I was because I, I was brought up as a Mormon in the Mormon church. Wow. Okay. And um, I used to go to this church in a place called Rottenstall near where I lived. And um, and um, this is kind of pre-punk, but it was long after the Bonzos had, had split up and died and everything. Mm -hmm. but I went into this shop and saw a, cop a copy of the donut in Granny's greenhouse. <laughs> no, actually, no. I borrowed it first off a friend at school who said, "Look at this." Uh -huh. I ended up buying it at this shop in Rotterdam, but he showed me this album and I'd never seen anything like it. And I remember playing it and I remember thinking this, this kind of, this sums up how I feel, which is, which is to be very caustic and critical of, of straight society, especially society. And, and Monty Python were doing the same thing. Sure. Is to poke fun at the establishment, do it in such a way that's, that's clever and eclectic and weird. And that brings in, lots of artistic influences and all that sort of thing. And then it must be two, maybe two years later that I discovered anarchism. And again, I thought this, this fits in with that whole, yeah. that whole concept of Dadaism being, being an anti-establishment thing and an anti-war, but, but, but embracing absurdity as a way mm. of trying to explain it rather than being po-faced and rather than writing, you know, uh, critical studies about things. Mm -hmm. And, and anarchism, anarchism was brilliant for that because it's not like Marxism where it's a set of ideas which were written by one bloke and that can't change with the world, really. Right. Anarchism kind of changes all the time, depending where you are and what you're doing, but you can apply its same kind of general ideas to wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Yeah. 
I mean, that's that then I mean, it opens up a world of, of ideas and concepts and things that might fall into that category that people might even, you know, I, I, I probably haven't even thought about, um, you know, and I think about this shit all the time. But it, 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 it is nice to hear it from somebody who lived it, you know, for first. For, and it's an ethos. Are there other. Um, this is probably going to sound just like complete bullshit to you, but I would say my favorite band of all time is probably XTC and they're a band who went from sort of punk, but definitely kept evolving and, and, and got eclectic. I mean, even the Beatles could get eclectic at times. Um, it seems like it's a necessary thing of, of good art just to keep, to keep that in mind. And, you know, because, you know, when, when, when punk first started, um, Mm -hmm. you know, people tend to think that punk is, was punk rock as opposed to punk. When punk first started, Mm. it was... It was nothing if not eclectic. It was, it was all girl bands. It was poets. It was acoustic punk. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the first British, the first year or maybe year or two of punk in Britain was was just you just couldn't second guess what was what it was gonna what was gonna happen next within it. It's mm-hmm. everything sounded quite different. The idea of it being four blokes with guitars like the Clash and the Pistols, mm-hmm. that's the thing that's been taken up by people. But they were just kind of one aspect of it. Yeah. And I think, you know, I remember the first time I saw XTC, they were doing a cover of um, All Along the Watchtower uh-huh. yeah. on this on this TV show called All Grey Whistle Test. Mm-hmm. And I'd heard of XTC as just being, you know, wow, this is, you know, new punk band right, right early on. And the way they took that song, which is, you know, so iconic and everything, the way they took that song and just ripped it apart yeah and built it back into something completely different i just thought this is this is great these are these are clever and they they're worth watching yeah he he you know it's so funny is like if you listen to andy partridge also get interviewed he's like he's so embarrassed by what he calls his barking singing at the time but i don't know man there's oh, something yeah. about it that to me i kind of love i kind of love yeah, it yeah all that, that yelping and yeah mm-hmm. It's it yeah. is it, it, you know it it is very it's very primal and there's and uh, I I like it, it you know as you get older sure maybe you're gonna do less of the primal shit but like there's still yeah. something in there there's still something in there and, it, and, it, and it's the thing it's the idea that that you can which which again which we always loved and which I still love which is that you can take classic pop harmonies and melodies and if you can write melodies and tunes and 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 construct harmonies then you could just be a very nice normal pop group mm-hmm. or you could take that and start deconstructing it and messing around with it and 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 making it a little bit weird and writing lyrics which shouldn't really belong in pop songs and <laughs> do you know what i mean you can you can play with it in all sorts of different ways which is which is what all the the kind of best artists did i think they're uh you know, in, it's so funny because again, I do I do not think if anybody knows your history, they would necessarily pick this as a record that you would love if they didn't know that this was part of it was genuinely a part of your influence. That's the thing; it's not just something you loved. This this is a genuine influence for you, and I love yeah. that. Is there anything on yeah. this this record in particular that stands out as a as a favorite for you or a few favorites? There's so much good well, stuff. Well, what, what it was, it it was when I kind of realized how how um, how Neil Innes worked, mm-hmm. which you could kind of see in his in his earlier works anyway, and his stuff with Monty Python. But it, it made me realise that um, that uh, he could kind of do anything he wanted, and he was basically Eric Idle saying, "Go on then, do whatever you want," mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and it, and hence it's just full of clever twists and turns, and and again you just never know. You, you imagine Eric Idle going, um, "I've got this idea, and it's." Um, it's 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 a sketch and it's about accountants and <laughs> and Neil and he's going oh well okay well I'll write a little thing about accountants but instead of it being uh, just like boring I'll make it into a, a sea shanty. <laughs> just think, where did that come from? It's beautiful and it's mm-hmm. actually and it, you know you can sing along to it and it's just really funny and ridiculous. But um, but um, what 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 Eric Idle was doing was trying to. Um, you're kind of taking Monty Python a bit a step further and trying to lampoon the entire uh, television media and, and just really kind of have a go at it. And it's incredibly accurate. Yeah, it really is accurate, and at the same time, really funny and weird and and stupid. And it's even uh, I love that it's more know, specifically English even than than Python. At least it feels that way to me. It feels because it's supposed to be small town England. Yes, it is. Yeah, it's very. We're a very small ramshackle TV company, and uh, we can't really afford afford much. But um, 
but let's see what we can do with it. You know, a really small cast and a really small bunch of musicians that made it. Mm-hmm. But there's um there's a there's one song on on the album which 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 is a parody of um kind of uh uh, American musicals, which is that mm-hmm. 24 hours in Tum- Tunbridge Wells. It might be my favorite thing on the whole record. And it's so beautifully crafted. It's really yeah. beautiful. It's like, let's take this idea of these these fantastic, great musicals with the dance numbers and apply it to the most boring little village in, in, in southern England. It's, it's fantastic, yeah. That has since changed its name to Royal Tunbridge Wells, maybe in response to the song. <laughs> Oh, it has, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. it's true, yeah. <laughs> Which is so fucking yeah, funny. Yeah, I had to look at it up, and I'm like, I know this is going to be a nothing town, but I need to learn a little bit more about it. And it was just hilarious yeah. that it has since changed its name to Royal Tunbridge Wells. Yeah. When I said about the like the connections of things, there was um, there was the start of the Ruttles, and mm-hmm. uh, not necessarily with the, the 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 appearance of the Ruttles on on you know Rutland TV. Mm-hmm. It was more that there's a, there's a song on there which is a kind of John Lennon parody. Um, the children of rock and roll, they never die, they just fade away. Mm-hmm. And and it really connects with, um, there's a, a, a long John Lennon parody on an album by National Lampoon. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it TV dinners? It's, I think it might be TV dinners. Oh, shit. And, um, People are going to hate me for forgetting because we've definitely talked about yeah, it. I think it's that one. And, and I, I bought it in a second-hand shop in, you know, in, in Lancashire where I was, where I was born. And I, and I, I remember hearing that Lennon parody and thinking this is great that someone's kind of having a go at the Beatles even though I love mm-hmm. the Beatles I think they're you know people ought to be you know having having a go at them a bit more yeah and so when so when when Neil Innes did it who was also a massive fan of the Beatles yeah I just thought this is great you know it's it's it kind of brings all these ideas together loved it it was it was radio dinner yep yep it, Radio and, Dinner. Uh, that's it, yeah, that's that's the one. And if I'm not mistaken, I think it's yeah, it's Tony Hendra doing doing his John Lennon. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, which is not bad, not bad at all. Although mm-hmm. I I might have a a spot in my a soft spot in my heart for Neil Innes just because to do an entire catalog of music, by the way, which you know toward oh. the end of his life, an entire catalog of music that is Beatles <laughs> parody and is just as good as yeah. the Beatles. It's yeah. upsetting. Yeah, that's it a really disturbing is. The, level of talent. Some of the ones that some of the songs that he's parodied, he, his parodies are, are are definitely equal to, if not better, than the Beatles, which is which is amazing. I know he wouldn't have accepted that. I know he if if I'd have said that, oh, I'm no. sure he wouldn't have accepted it. He seemed too nice, but yeah, it's too yeah. good. So yeah. Um, yeah. So you pick this up uh, again, what uh, this, and you find that you discovered this other stuff at a very critical time. Were you then, I'm assuming, a lifelong Innis and Python fan? Did you continue to listen to their stuff and watch their stuff? Yeah, definitely. I remember because I'd missed the Bonzos and I'd missed the Beatles. Mm-hmm. I just, just kind of grew up catching up with them. Yeah. But but Python, I I my dad once said, um, "You've got to watch this TV show. It's really it's really funny." And I'd never seen or heard of it. And I remember sitting down and watching it when, you know, on like a Thursday night for like 25 minutes. And, and I remember coming away being completely baffled, not getting it at all. Just thinking sure. that was the weirdest thing I've ever seen. And, but my dad kind of persisted and said, watch it again. What, try it again next week. And I, after about three episodes, I was like, yes, okay, I get it. <laughs> they, they destroy their own punchlines on purpose. And they, 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 you know, halfway through a sketch, they just crash into something else and just, never get to the end of it and i i wasn't used to it and I, and it, it was great it kind of made me re- rethink the way you can do things yeah well and it, i think it's exactly that spirit that works for people who were over here probably five six seven eight years later than you first watched it knew none of the english references couldn't understand a damn thing in terms of like yeah. these very specific references to english life and at the same yeah. time it resonated just as well somehow the absurdity yeah, yeah. just worked it's a communication tool yeah and it's and I, I think it's it's kind of a secret club as well when when um when you when you see kind of a humor or comedy beyond you know a comedian on a stage telling gags here's mm-hmm. a gag and here's the setup and here's the punchline when you when you kind of start relating to comedy that that plays with form and and really kind of stretches ideas and and wrecks their own you know wrecks punch punch lines and things like that then you you realize that that you're almost letting yourself into a secret world that other people get as well. 
Mm-hmm. And and that's really nice because you just think, oh, okay, this yeah, we're going, we're going, we kind of go one step further into that 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 black hole that is you know satire basically. Yeah. Did you was uh, was there anybody else in any of the groups that you hung out with, including the band, uh, or were they also fans of this same stuff, or was this more of a you thing? It was definitely more of a me thing, but but other people were into it mm-hmm. in the band, but it was definitely me that was that was kind of um, just realizing that, it, that having the knowledge of all this stuff that I'd been listening to for three or four years before punk to bring this into it. I think I just remember thinking this would be, this is really interesting stuff because a lot of people saw punk as year zero, which I and I totally understand that. I can see that mm-hmm. because they were basically like throwing out their albums by, you know, um, I don't know. Um, uh, yes and you know and uh, (laughs) journey and elp and pink floyd so they were kind of like let's start again with something that's not you know that that has a completely different attitude whereas i think i was i'd I'd, I'd never kind of listened to any of that kind of thing really Mm -hmm. when it when punk came along i just immediately thought yes this ties in with the stuff that i was listening to anyway yeah it's yeah, that makes sense. That makes. I, I mean, honestly, and I mean, there, are, there are obviously, again, so as you point out, so many different aesthetics to punk that it is hard to nail it down. But I mean, the Ramones yeah. have so much '50s doo-wop in their sound that it's, it's, it's hard to call yeah. it a new, new thing. It is a, definitely a new take yeah. and a new feel. But the, yeah. they're also such a huge sense of humor about them too that it would be, it would be stupid to say that there's no sense of humor about early punk. Um, yeah. Are there, are there any like real and this is something I'm actually, you know what? I know exactly who I would normally ask this question of, but uh, huge punk comedy crossovers that I'm not thinking of, like, you know, either groups or, or, or projects that are heavily punk and comedy at the same time, not just humor, but comedy. Yeah. There was, there, there was a band called, I don't know if you've heard of them called Alberto e Los Trios Paranoias. I don't know if you know those. Wait a minute. It, I, I've read it. I feel like I've read that name in a Wikipedia article somewhere. But I don't know enough about band. it. And they they um they actually when Devo when Devo came over to Britain when they had the first single out which was the Jocko Homo, mm-hmm. and which I which I loved and they they came over to Britain and their second gig was in Manchester and they were supporting Alberto e Los Trios Paranoia, who I loved anyway and I'd seen before, mm-hmm. and and we all knew that you know we. Word was coming over from America through, you know, through the New Musical Express and Sounds and our music magazines about this band called Devo from Ohio, from Akron. And that there were these pictures of them all wearing these, you know, yellow kind of shiny jumpsuits, mm-hmm. playing weird instruments and with, with strange hats on. And and they came on and did their set. And then Alberto Elos Trios Paranos, who were headlining, this is in Manchester Free Trade Hall, which was the same place where somebody shouted Judas at Bob Dylan, actually. But oh my God! But they came on as the headliners, and they walked on as Devo. They had they all had the suits and the hats and everything, and they did one of their Alberto songs, absolutely in a brilliant Devo parody style. Oh my God! Bear in mind, Devo had one single available in Britain at that point, and I just remember thinking, "This is fantastic! This group are amazing." They're um they were they were kind of pre-punk, but then they took up punk like madly mm-hmm. and they they did a whole the, a whole uh theater show called snuff rock called sleek it was called sleek okay but it, it spawned a whole thing called snuff rock where the whole idea was that they were a punk rock band and they wanted to be more punk than anybody else so they decided that they would kill the lead singer on stage and he would die <laughs> uh-huh. but of course during you know the during the course of this 90 minute narrative with loads of music and it's really funny they, they, it kind of dawns on them that they can only do it once <laughs> which is which is beautiful and they and then it's just this dilemma about what are they going to do and and it yes yeah, snuff rock and they they kind of parody punk music whilst wow. at the same time loving it and being part of it yeah so and so yeah if, if you get a chance to, to hear any of their stuff look, wow. look them up because they're, they're amazing well i mean that's remarkable because there's also i mean i, th- I think there are um there are groups of people who have definitely taken ideas like that uh, uh or taken what punk represents 
be inarguably, I think, too far. Uh, you know, and, and they become this new performance art and it does involve actually hurting people or at least claiming to and it, blah, blah, yeah. blah. I love the idea that that band is already there like, no, 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 20 years ahead. This is what punk could become. Isn't this a fun idea? This yeah. is a dystopian idea of the very thing that we're interested in. Let's explore it now. Get it out of the way. I love that. That's yeah. beautiful. Wow. Absolutely. Yeah, wow. it is. It's brilliant because well, because it means that when people did start kind of you know, using violence and, and, you know, self-inflicted injuries on stage as a way of kind of saying, look at me, you know, I'm more punk mm-hmm. than everybody else. You could kind of laugh at it because you just thought, yeah, this is this has been done a long time ago and it, it was done mm-hmm. with a lot more panache and style. So, Right. Oh, my God. That's, uh, again, these are things that you don't often hear about and you have to interview people who were there. You have to talk to people who actually saw this shit live. That's an amazing idea for a show. <laughs> yeah. My God. Yeah. I hope there's yeah. tape of that somewhere. Have yeah. uh how about as a group or, or as a performer yourself? I mean, did you ever explore sort of uh, performance art? Was that always a part of it? Was it ever a part of it? Yeah, that was always kind of a part of it. Before, before uh, we before we kind of uh, got Chumbawamba together, mm-hmm. myself and Danbert, who was in the band, who now lives in Twisp near near Seattle. Um, oh wow! Okay, we we had a band called Chimpit's Banana, mm-hmm. with lots of friends, with Midge and with Nadim, and and um, it was um, the whole point was to be to be a comedy punk band. Mm-hmm. So, but we realized we couldn't play any instruments. We we genuinely couldn't play. Oh we God. went to a musicians collective meeting, having said, "Oh, let's start a band," but we hadn't really done anything about it. And at this musicians collective meeting in Lancashire, somebody passed a piece of paper around and said. You know, just everybody that's here, just put your name down to say you were here. And if you're in a band, put the name of your band. And so one of us wrote, you know, our names or whatever and put band Chim Pete's Banana. <laughs> just as three words that had that didn't mean anything whatsoever. Uh-huh. And then, literally within a month, they rang up and said, ah, oh, we're trying to get in touch with this, you know, band Chim Pete's Banana. We've got you a gig. And so we suddenly had to meet round at Dan's house and say, right, who's going to play guitar? Who wants to have a go at playing drums? Um, and we knew we couldn't really play instruments, but we had lots of ideas. So the first gig, we called it a bed gig, and we all turned up in our pyjamas and with a mattress, and somebody slept on the stage for the entire gig. And uh, all the songs that we played were about about nighttime and going to sleep, <laughs> things like that. And then the, the mm-hmm. second gig we did was we just did covers of uh, really awful kind of cabaret songs. Mm-hmm. tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree and things like that uh, sure <laughs> none of it none of it sounded like punk really but, but right. we would we were just kind of in that punk spirit of thinking you know what you don't have to spend four or five years in your bedroom learning to play guitar solos as long mm-hmm. as you've got the ideas you can you can do something with it and that's how we started so it you know the whole thing started as being a comedy thing could you today, if asked, like if you if somebody slapped a guitar in your hand right now, <clears throat> could you mimic the what I'm assuming is terrible quality playing you did on that first show? Could what I mean? I would. I first of all, I wish there were a recording of it. If there's not, that makes me sad. But do you have a concept of what it sounded like? Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, one of the one of the interesting things is that after about the first three or four years of me learning to play guitar, electric mm-hmm. guitar. Um, which only started when I was about seventeen. Mm-hmm. I um, I never got any better. I realised that 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 right. the way I play guitar was was enough to to be able to carry ideas and was enough to be a songwriter. And yeah. I always saw myself as a songwriter rather than a guitarist. So after after making about three or four albums with Chumbawamba, we were in the studio at some point with this this engineer called Neil Ferguson, who was the engineer back then. He later joined the band, but at the time he was the engineer. And we were playing something on one of the albums and I was having difficulty playing playing it the way. And he said, well, maybe if you do it, you know, with a, you know, I don't know, try an augmented fifth or something. I was like, look, Neil, I have no idea what that is. You, you obviously know, don't you? And he said, well, yeah. I said, please just come and play it. And he came and played this part. And, and seriously, after that, apart from a couple of tiny bits for about the next 10 albums, he played all the guitar. Holy shit. Even though he wasn't in the band at the time. I was, and I was perfectly happy for him to do that. I was mm-hmm. like, why, why should I play it rather when you can play it so much better? <laughs> as far as I was concerned, I, I, I was really 
and and we all were we were really wedded and embedded in the ideas and yeah. what, you know if we wanted to do a parody of a like for instance a do what 1950s song then we knew we could listen you know we we knew what it what we wanted it to sound like and we would get it to sound like that it didn't mean we could all play fantastically well like some great 1950s session group sure so and so again that was the kind of punk spirit that that just held through which is like look the ideas are more important than the the music yeah so yeah so that early chimpy's banana stuff where i could hardly play guitar at all and we could hardly play drums or anything but um mm -hmm. But the ideas were, were, I think, were clever enough to, to make it a show and for people to enjoy it. There's some pure fucking joy in that, though, right? Like, that is, that is, that's art, right? I mean, feeling it, in, at it least is. in terms of feeling it and having that shit come right out of your chest. It is art. It's great. One ah. of the great things about, about, I mean, not just what punk did, but what a lot of kind of music styles after that, including things like hip hop and, you know, Riot Girl and things like that, are, are movements where, and, and dance music are movements where everything gets more evolved and incredibly well produced and incredibly musical. And then something comes along and says, do you know what? You can do this in your bedroom with a laptop. Yeah. Or do you know what? You can do this on a mic and just put a backing track of, of you know, um, some uh, Grandmaster Flash backing track on and you can do your own rapping on the top of it. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's it's you know, especially for kids growing up, it's like, yes, take control of the ideas and, and the self-expression rather than the the technique and the formality of it. And that's it's such a releasing thing to be able to do. You know, it's interesting because it's, uh, I, I don't know, I could be wrong, but I feel like I was the beneficiary of that in terms of comedy by the time I was finally getting to make comedy records in the late 90s and early 2000s as a, yeah. as a teenager in the early 20s. Because there were websites that were like, hey, if you want, send us your MP3s, and if people buy it, they buy a CD. And I was like, of course I want a fucking CD of my own comedy. Why would I not do that? So I put together a, yeah. a hastily, I won't say hastily, I did a pretty good job putting together my own record. But I mean, that uh, that then led me to being addicted to making my own stuff and knowing that if nobody else is going to make my stuff for me or sell my stuff, then yeah. fuck it. I, I have the yeah. outlet. You know? Absolutely. Now, yeah, what I've what brilliant. I've never what I've never experienced though is being a band who literally and again I, I I'll 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 put a link uh, in the show notes so that people can listen to the podcast I listened to where you and Adam McKay spoke quite a bit, but like literally mm -hmm. your band who goes from doing a song called Fuck EMI to signing with EMI and getting to take advantage of a, a big moment like what how did that feel I rarely ask that question but how did that feel um. It was brilliant. I have to say, for that whole period, especially the first kind of year of it, mm -hmm. um, with with tub thumping, was was just hilarious. Not mm -hmm. just on reflection, even at the time, we we had a lovely thing where, because we didn't go around kind of touting our songs around to record companies and stuff. Yeah. What happened is that who's the woman that wrote, um, who sang "I'm a bitch, I'm a uh, Meredith Brooks, if I remember correctly. Meredith Brooks. Yeah. Meredith Brooks. So there was a tape of, of Tub Thumping before it was ever released or anything like that. And for some reason, she she heard it. Because our, our manager used to be Motorhead's manager, Motorhead and Hope oh, okay. and stuff. So there was some connection there. And she heard the song and at somewhere, at some party or something. And someone said, oh, what's that? No, she said, what's that? And they said, oh, it's some unreleased thing by this band in England. And she took it to her record company and said have you heard this this it's it hasn't even come out yet in england and they heard they listened to it and got in touch this was the people from republic records which became universal mm -hmm. and um they flew over from america to we were playing in switzerland on on may day we were playing in zurich i think it was uh -huh. and they flew over to meet us we were thinking why are they flying over to meet us you know it just seemed crazy Mm -hmm. And they met us, and it just became this kind of roller coaster thing of, this is just surreal and and mad, and we've never been in this world. Let's just really enjoy it and have fun with it. Yeah, I mean the the whole EMI thing was really funny because English EMI didn't want to have anything to do with us. <laughs> it was Jenny EMI that picked up and heard the tape. Again, probably through Universal, I'm not sure, but they yeah, they, they then said oh, we're really interested in this. We'd like to put put your album out. And the only caveats we had were, 
yep, that's great. Nothing can change on it. We do all the artwork and everything. You can't change a single thing. Oh, holy shit, okay. <clears throat> they said, yeah, okay. They really wanted it, so they got it, and they 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 decided to put it out in Germany, and they 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 are EMI in Germany is a lot bigger than EMI in Britain. Mm-hmm. So they, they, they got in touch with Britain and said, right, I know you've turned this down and you don't want anything to do with it, but we are basically commanding that you, you put this out because it's going to be a hit. Mm-hmm. So EMI London, against all their, you know, sense of what they really wanted to do, had to put it out. <laughs> and so we love this. We just thought, this is great. This <laughs> this big, you know, kind of royal company having to mm-hmm. put this record out against their wishes. <laughs> so we, the first week it came out, it got into the charts and we, we were asked to play this tele- television show called Top of the Pops, mm-hmm. which is the flagship British pop show. Yeah. Everybody that I knew, everybody that we knew grew up watching it. And they invited us to play on it. This is like a week earlier, we, we, you know, nobody had heard of us. And then suddenly they were like, right, can you come and be on Top of the Pops in two days? Shit. Wow. We thought, this is, this is really funny. So we all turned up at the Top of the Pops in a, in a van. Mm-hmm. And we all walked in. And there were some people on, the, on the, the main doors with holding flowers and all this sort of thing. And we, you know, we walked past them. They, they, they weren't there for us. But we'd been there about half an hour. And suddenly these people with all the flowers came to our dressing room and said, Oh, we're really sorry. We didn't realize that was you walking past us. We're, we're, where am I? And we've been sent to give you these flowers. And we just thought, this is brilliant. They don't even know what we look like. <laughs> They've been, these minions have been dispatched with flowers. Oh, and so, God. you know, we just, we just loved every minute of it, just kind of basically taking the piss out of every famous person that we met along the way and, <laughs> and just having a really good time with it. I mean, you fun. sort of have to, right? I mean, and it, it, it's not even a matter of like, you know, I, I'll i tell you, I think the first time I heard any heard of any connection between Chumbawamba and Anarchy was basically, hey, steal our fucking record, we don't care. And I was like, that's oh, yeah. got to be a gimmick. And then now to now know that, no, it's not a gimmick, you didn't give a fuck, is maybe yeah. one of the most delightful things I've ever heard. Yeah. I'll tell you, I'll tell you one thing about that was that, was that, so we were we were on tour in America at the time, and Alice had said that in an interview, which we all agreed with. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, if you're buying your records from you know mom and pop stores or whatever, then sure. then pay for it. That's really important. But you know, if you're getting them from some like mega store or whatever in New York, then if you want to steal it, why not? <laughs> and obviously, this caused a real furore and everything. And the day after, uh, Monty and Avery from Monty and Avery Lipman, who were the, these two lovely brothers who ran Republic Records, who were our record label, they rang us up and we, we were in California somewhere. We had one phone then because it was in those days, you know, you, you shared a mobile phone amongst all the people in the band. Okay. I remember Dunstan took this call. We were, we were somewhere outside in California and he said, all right, wait, everyone, this is Monty and Avery. They're ringing up about last night, about Alice being on that program last night. So we were all like, oh, brilliant. This is great. So this is the conversation from our end just went, Dunstan going, yeah, right, right. So, are you asking, are you asking politely if we're going to take it back, or are you just saying it because you think you have to say it? And he said, right, yeah, okay, yes. Well, you know what our answer is, don't you? And he's <laughs> laughing all the time, and and he goes, right, okay. And he puts the phone down. He goes, he says, Montenegro. He says they're just laughing. He said they've been asked by their their higher ups to formally request that we politely say we're really sorry to, that we said this and we didn't really mean it. And they knew full well that we'd say, no, we did mean it and we really enjoyed it and we'd say it again. So, but they had to ask anyway. And we were just all doubled up just thinking, this is great. This is, this is great fun. Being able to, being able to not take that whole world, that corporate world seriously and still have a laugh with it. We just oh. thought, well, we're having a good time. It's not going to yeah. change the world if we we just you know say no to everything so yeah so yeah in short we just had a really good time with it all ah that's so good i mean well and it also becomes in you you were then free to do you're still free to be yourself and free to have the band that you want to have if you're not then immediately doing what you talked about earlier finding that one thing and sticking with it because maybe maybe again Maybe it would have been a constant chart-topping sort of issue, but rather than that, you stuck to your guns and just kept making shit you enjoyed, which you cannot... Yeah. I, 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 you have to love that. I appreciate the shit out of that. Yeah. And, we, and I think 
because it was really hard work and because we'd been together for so long and so it, we, we could have been forgiven for being a bit cynical about all that that industry mm -hmm. anyway mm -hmm. but um our response to it wasn't was was kind of look we're not going to get sucked into this mm -hmm. we're not one of these kind of young bands that's going to just you know sell the soul and just try and make the same hit record over and over again and 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 be really worried if we you know and and get just do all the gigs that we're supposed to do and in horrible places we just mm -hmm. thought let's just let's just have a laugh with it and if we did something if we did things that people didn't like and you know i'll, I'll tell you one thing we did which was um this uh, to me this is kind of the high point of of my my memories of being in chumbawamba really which is that we played on a bill in germany it's a huge kind of stadium gig with um sonic youth and smashing pumpkins wow okay and and you know we we were often ended up playing with bands that we really loved and we thought this is you know this is great wow we get to play we played after sonic youth who, who were brilliant mm -hmm. and they were lovely people really lovely and just thinking this is great and we played and then smashing pumpkins all the all day when they'd been sound checking and everything had been complete arses really really ignorant awful people mm -hmm. surrounded by ignorant awful management Mm. classic kind of rock star arrogance going on and um and we were just fed up of it we just this is ridiculous they went they, they sound checked for so long that neither us nor uh sonic youth could have a proper sound check for oh instance God. and half of it was just them jamming which is really annoying wow. and um so this this went on all evening and we, we just like that okay we've had enough of this this is ridiculous we were in the dressing room before they came on just you know, in in the corridor and by the side of the stage, just kind of talking and chatting. Anyway, this all the management comes out from the Smashing Pumpkins and sweeps everyone to the side. And says, right, everybody back in your dressing rooms. Everybody has to be in the dressing rooms for Smashing Pumpkins to walk along the corridor to get to the stage. <laughs> We're going, what? They're like, no, seriously, everybody back in your rooms, back in your rooms. The pumpkins are coming out. So we all had to go back in the room. So we got back in the room. Right, right what are we going to do about this? So the plan was that Dambert would strip naked and we, we wrote punk on his on his chest in mm -hmm. big black letters. So right, at the, when they're halfway through one of the huge guitar solos, Dambert, it happened. And it's on TV as well. It's on YouTube as well somewhere. <laughs> it was on, on national TV in uh, Germany. And they're playing this big guitar solo and suddenly this guy walks on naked and he just walks calmly to the middle of this huge stage and stands at the front with punk written on his chest and the band are looking at him like what is going on here what the fuck is this and and he just kind of waves to the crowd really sedately and then walks off again and security come running on and grab him and all this sort of thing and of course we were in stitches and really just completely laughing at all this and and the guitarist got the joke. I don't think um, what's he called did. What's he called the lead singer? Uh, um, Billy, Billy Corgan. He, he he takes himself. Well, he did used to take himself really seriously, so he didn't really acknowledge it. But the guitarist um, James Ehar just said, "Whoa, we salute <laughs> the naked man." <laughs> <laughs> and if, and we got thrown out of the venue. Lots of heavies came and they they kind of dragged people kicking and screaming wow. out of the venue, and we got ejected. And the, the TV produce, production people shouted you'll never appear on german tv again and that was the year before tub thumping so then tub thumping happened the year after and they, uh -huh. they got in touch again um would you would you like to appear on you know this national tv thing <laughs> but, yeah that's how it works that's that industry through and through <laughs> oh boy i mean and then how do you not i mean you have to i mean you have to be laughing the whole way otherwise how do you function i mean that is i mean that is exactly what this podcast yeah. is about is about finding you know the piece of comedy that maybe keeps you alive or keeps you keeps you running. I've had comedy albums that have definitely kept me going through times that are that are difficult. You know, yeah, um, and, absolutely. And it, did you yeah. did you ever make friends over any comedy records? Doesn't have to be this one, but was there was there ever like a like a lot of trading going on between your friends and yourself? Or yeah, we, no, we had a, right at the beginning before again just pre punk when I was still at school. Me and a few friends just decided that we wanted to do some kind of Monty Python, um, Rutland Weekend television thing. And we couldn't, I kind of knew about three or four chords on a piano. Mm -hmm. And we used to make tapes. And that kind of got me 
it got me. It was with, with, with this. Who was it with? It was uh, this this lad called Mick Binns, who was brilliant. He was the lad that lent me Donut in Granny's Greenhouse, the Bonzo Dog Band record. Mm-hmm. And it just felt like, okay, this this clicks. I get this. And so from then on, whenever I went somewhere, I first went to college and later on, if you'd ever mentioned these kind of, you know, if you ever threw in references to, references to Viv Stanshall or Monty Python or something, you got this kind of instant instant bond where people understood exactly what you were on about. And you could, you know, you could throw in little lines from somewhere and knowing that you had some kind of uh, connection there. That's so good. Uh, early you... Frank Zappa was really good for that as well. Those first three Frank Zappa albums, which are such such a, a, a treasure trove of, of, of fun and, and, and social commentary. Brilliant. I have been waiting, honestly, to have somebody say, let's talk about Frank Zappa on the show. Nobody has yet. So I've never heard Frank Zappa uh, almost. Ex- and so yeah. I sometimes save these things, you know, like I've, I've owned this record for six years and I love both of them. But I've been waiting for somebody to pick it before I talk about it. Yeah. Um, do those early tapes exist? That's my that's my next question. Please tell me those early tapes of you performing your youthful songs are I've thought somewhere. a few times about trying to go through lots of uh, boxes of cassettes yeah. see what actually there is in there and, and I've never actually done it I'm sure it's really embarrassing and awful so. sure I mean I will tell you I do an entire podcast with my best friend where we talk about our very embarrassing awful comedy from when we were very young and <laughs> yeah. how terrible it is and how if yeah. we did this humor as an adult we'd be a terrible person um yeah. uh but I understand why people sometimes don't want to dig into that stuff for themselves. Um, <laughs> well, I've got I've got a, I've got a ten year old son now, and he's 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 really funny, and yeah. he's he's got past the point now where his his humour is is just about you know farts and poo. He's he's now onto uh, kind of mimicry, and love it. It's all it's it's really good to watch. I just think oh he's. He's, he's really got it that you know he's he's the kid who who mimics the teacher to all the rest <laughs> of the class and they all laugh so i just think yeah it's good he's got it in his blood somewhere uh this oh my god I, there's so much by the way there's an entire song on here about a washing machine yeah that, i mean <laughs> how the skill to make that sound good yeah I, yeah. and I and I wish I knew if 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 he'd had the idea and then said okay cool well let me put these chords or if he'd had a set of chords in mind already and then put the two together again sadly don't have him around to ask now but um boy oh boy there's just so much good stuff on here uh I, I mean yeah because that that album is you know I've I've used the word eclectic quite a lot mm-hmm. in this conversation but it's so eclectic that you just yeah. think he can he can do anything he really can and um I mean, I saw him live lots of times. Did and, you? Okay, that was yeah. going to be a question of mine. All right, please. And, and um, what was really interesting was that because he didn't have a band with him a lot of the time, he um, he would he would turn it into a, a kind of reminiscing and talking. Okay. Show a lot of times, especially towards the end, a lot of it was talking about things that had gone on in the past, and then illustrating it with a song, and um, and which was brilliant. But but I did hanker for that thing where because I've heard kind of bootleg tapes and bootleg CDs and stuff of the Bonzos rehearsing. Mm-hmm. You're aware that Viv Stanshall, who's this incredible genius ideas man, wasn't very musical, and he he does they they, they start several songs and the drummer or Viv Stanshall or someone come in at the wrong time and they or they lose time and they. The, the, the beat suddenly goes to the on beat when it should be on the off beat. And, and Neil stops them all and says, whoa, whoa, everybody, stop, stop, stop. Right. You know, when it gets to this bit, that's where you come in with this, come in on this word. And you did, and and that's one of the reasons I really loved him because it's, it wasn't just, you know, funny and comedy and satire, but, but that level of kind of knowing how to, what's the word, how to organise people and organise the sounds to make what he wanted to make, which I always yeah. really admired. Especially again with people who are not musical. That is a friggin' skill. That is yeah. a skill. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's lovely. Lovely. <clears throat> um, okay. I normally uh, ask people to say, give give me a couple sentences. Let's say nobody knows somehow Eric Idle. Maybe they don't know Eric Idle beyond Python. Maybe they don't know anything about Neil Innes. Why listen to this album? Why give this this one a listen? Because I think that 
I think a lot of people uh, know about certain things like Eric Idle and Monty Python or Neil Innes and, and um, you know, I'm the Urban Spaceman or the Ruttles. And I think this album, like nothing else they did, kind of explodes that, those, 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 that idea that the, the, you can second guess these people. Mm-hmm. And you listen to this and you just think it is it is a it's a parody of a TV station, but it is sounds like a TV station and it sounds like it's got a cast of about 100 people and lots of different musicians sharing lots of different ideas. And in fact, it's basically two people with a, a kind of li- tiny little band. And I just think it's it, it's so funny all the way through. And the other thing is because they're all written for TV, none of the songs um, outstay their welcome. Right. Some of them are, are like a minute long, or, and I love that as well. I think that's that's great. There's also there's a oh god I I'm gonna get the the year wrong, but there's a bit on here called gibberish, which is honestly when Eric Idle just goes on saying nothing, as yeah. though he's a TV presenter. It is mm. pro- one of my favorite things. Oh, it's beautiful. In, yeah, it's so good. Yeah, I wish I well, wish I'd have written well, any of the the bullshit down. But it's so yeah, because once you once you once you hear that. Mm-hmm. Then you can't you can't listen to a, a kind of TV interviewer again, right? Without understanding, oh, it's not about what they're actually talking about. It's about these mannerisms and these pauses and these these gestures. It's it's fantastic, yeah. Oh, yeah, I, there there's uh, I'm you've probably heard it the old sketch rock notes where he's you know where Toad the Wet Sprocket got their name and all that, which is just a list of dumb shit in fake music history and him talking oh i think that has influenced my comedy more than anything i don't know that what's what's that i don't know Uh, it's called rock notes and it's him just going on about all these fake bands that Uh, don't exist and as though they do and yeah you know somebody injures themselves falling off the back of a motorcycle falling off the back of a motorcyclist most likely and he just everything he says it just keeps going and going and for about three minutes and it is beauty it is that's yeah, and I, this honestly is like a uh, it is it is a greatest hits of all of Eric Idle's strengths and all of Neil Innes's strengths. Yeah, uh, which are seemingly unlimited. <laughs> I don't know how. I don't know yeah. how they're that good at what they do. Yeah, um, yeah boy, oh it does. Appear, it, it, it does appear. So, like for instance, the Ruttles, which was just yeah, mm-hmm. here's a two minute sketch. Oh yeah, I'll <laughs> dash off a quick song that sounds a little bit like the Beatles. But then the idea that they would pick up on it and someone would say, "Well, how about going away and writing?" you know, 15 songs that chart the entire career of the Beatles and him saying, yeah, I could, you know, give me a couple of months and I'll do that. You just mm-hmm. think, yeah, he could have done that about anything. I know. He could have given him anything to do and he would have been able to do it. It's fantastic. And the weirdest thing, though, is like that he was in just that, you know, and I think I asked him a bit about it, but that he is this weird sticking point for the Beatles and for Python that they all. And I mean, this album's produced by George. I mean, George Harrison's company released this. So, I mean, you know, it's it's very in the nicest way possible, very incestual. Like it is like they all just knew what one another needed to make. And it's uh, it's it's very beautiful. There's so much. There, there's one song also on here where he also plays music in the worst possible way and he says, I've suffered for my music and now now you will too, or something to that effect. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what? I'll tell you what's funny as well is that George Harrison is a bit of a linchpin in, in that whole, that mid, mid-1970s comedy thing because he... Yeah. So he, he bankrolled this. Mm-hmm. He's, I don't know if you've seen... Have you seen the, the, the Rutland Weekend television right at the very end where George Harrison actually comes on and starts playing pirate song oh, the pirate song that, yeah uh-huh which starts just like my sweet lord and the joke is that so obviously he's just been he's just been sued for uh right for all the royalties for it for uh you know it being plagiaristic and everything so he comes on and does this funny little thing but at the same time he 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 was um he was also bankrolling the monty python film the, was it life mm-hmm. of brian no, no holy grail was wasn't it yeah holy grail and then i think he might have also did life of brian but yeah yeah and then he also he also stumped up the money for um, uh, With Nail and I. I don't know if you know that film. I did not know that. I didn't know that he did that. Wow, okay. Yeah, he, he was he was kind of really, when they were really struggling to, to get funding for it, he stepped in and said, right, here you go. Here's some money for it. So he's, he's kind of made, and, and, and he, he gave them, I think he, I think he was the only compilation album that he ever allowed his, his music to be on, was the With Nail and I compilation album. Wow. Quite rare. And and I love the fact that, you know, and with the Ruttles parody and everything, there's all these connections between all the different things. Mm-hmm. It's lovely. 
really nice. Yeah, it's 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 beautiful. Um, and I any honestly, any time to talk about Neil Innes uh, makes me happy. Um, this is not going to come out for some time unless you've got something urgent in which to promote. In which case, I can push it sooner. Other than that, I would say probably a couple of months. You know, probably yeah, before it comes out. Um, Remote, so. Nothing to promote. Uh, where should people find your work then? Um, I'd say online. That's mm-hmm. the easiest <laughs> easiest place to to go and find it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, what's... I'm, I do a lot of work now with uh, with with theatre companies. I'm working with Welsh National Opera, and I do. I've, I'm I'm I've got a choir called Commoners Choir, and we 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 sometimes do comedic things, and it's all out there on the internet somewhere. Okay. <laughs> you know i mean that that is uh, they can go to your what should i send them to your website or yeah, would yeah, you object yeah. <laughs> no no i've got a website yeah yeah it's, it's just com. love yeah. it love it uh there's 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 so much up here uh you know what honestly this has been uh a delight and i would talk to you for hours but i'm not going to keep you um it's yeah. much no, that's there great. Than it is here. <laughs> i've really um, enjoyed that it's just nice to talk about something different other than you know the usual chumbawamba stuff so it's great sure well i know it, it was nice knowing uh, i don't know I, I like you know you always hear about comedy and music having these crossovers but th- that it had this specific an influence and uh, and knowing, you know, obviously that we both uh, obviously have a huge love for Neil Innes and Eric Idle. Um, yeah. It was nice. Uh, you're welcome back anytime, of course, no pressure, but I would love to have you back at some point if you'd be interested. So Yeah, great stuff. Um, and I will say thank you for doing this show and thank you to my audience. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And as always, have a good thing. Comedy on Vinyl is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. It is produced by Mike Warden and is hosted and edited by Jason Klom. Our theme song was composed and performed by Richard Levinson. You can email us at podcast at comedyonvinyl.com. You can also send snail mail to Stolen Dress Entertainment, P.O. Box 805, Burbank, California, 91503. Subscribe to Comedy on Vinyl on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you can find podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and write us a review. It helps. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Comedy on Vinyl, or find everything in one place at ComedyOnVinyl.com. A major portion of Comedy on Vinyl has been underwritten by Stand Up Records. Please visit StandUpRecords.com for all your comedy needs and tune in to the new Stand Up Records channel available on the Roku, where you can also find select episodes of this podcast. Visit StolenDress.com to listen to our other podcasts, watch videos, and imbibe freely of our multimedia content going back 15-plus years. Dress Entertainment. Hey, it's my turn. Ah!